Well more than 3,000 years ago, the Babylonians were making notes on clay tablets about the location of the moon. With more than 900 years of observations, people could actually systematically deduce things from those records. Remarkable, and kind of an example of an important moment for early science. On this episode of the American Scientist Podcast, the data and mathematics behind predicting solar eclipses. I'm Robert Frederick. There may have been even Western civilizations that existed before the Babylonians who were keeping track of the locations of the moon and other celestial bodies. But we know the Babylonians were doing so with the rigor of mathematicians. It's kind of an epic story of science. Stephen Wolfram is the creator of the software program Mathematica and has been studying the history of predicting eclipses. I spoke with him by telephone. It's probably one of the longest-running, most successful stories in the history of exact science. In Western civilization, that story appears to begin with the Babylonians. It surprised me that the Babylonians got as far as they did. The fact that a civilization could keep records for 900 years and not lose those records and that people could actually systematically deduce things from those records, I consider remarkable and kind of an example of an important moment for early science. Wolfram says that the Babylonians noticed, for example, that the moon's phases repeated themselves every 29.53 days. They noticed also an anomalistic month when the moon sped up, and that's about 27.55 days, which turned out to be because the moon, as we know now, is in a slightly elliptical orbit. The Babylonians also noticed the moon had an inclination to its orbit, so that the moon went above and below the plane of Earth's orbit around the sun. And the cycle of that happening was about every 27.21 days. Putting it all together, it's kind of mind-boggling, but around the time that Socrates was sentenced to death and was drinking hemlock, the ancient Babylonians had noticed that about every 18 years, using today's terminology, those three different cycles of the moon lined up. So every 18 years, the moon is in the same position relative to the sun. So if you knew the exact date of a solar eclipse, well, then you could pretty well predict there'd be another one in 18 years. Though it doesn't always work out, for a variety of reasons, and does nothing to tell you where the eclipse will be seen on the Earth. You can see a modern-day representation of this cycle courtesy of NASA on our website, americanscientist.org. And then, you know, people like Ptolemy, who famously put the Earth at the center of the universe at about 150 CE. He kind of took his cue, I think, from Euclid. So Ptolemy had the idea that he would prove theorems about astronomy. And uh, uh, he was right about that. I mean, Ptolemy, on a more global level, had kind of the wrong theory of the solar system. He thought the Earth was at the center and things like that. But when it came to the geometry that he worked on, he, he got it absolutely right. And and it actually didn't matter. I mean, in modern mathematical terms, the fact that he put the Earth at the center of the solar system as opposed to the Sun was just kind of a change of coordinates. It didn't really affect his geometry theorems. So when Copernicus introduced the Sun as the center of the solar system in the year 1543, 
It didn't lead to any real advance in the mathematics of predicting solar eclipses. No, Stephen Wolfram says, the next big advances took the invention of calculus. And in 1702, although he hadn't solved what was then being called the problem of the moon, Isaac Newton published his 20-page theory of the moon. The methods that even people like Euler were using. So after Newton. And later Lagrange and Laplace. These are very energetic uses of calculus. And if you look at what they were doing, it looks just like a modern calculus book. They were all working on what's known today as the three-body problem. The three-body problem is a, is a messy, difficult problem. And all sorts of mathematicians tried it. Newton, quite famously, had solved the two-body problem, which describes the motion of two bodies as they interact with one another, like the moon going around the Earth, or the Earth going around the sun. But the three-body problem, you know where this is headed, right? The three-body problem would describe the position of the Earth, the moon, and the sun, and so mathematically describe when solar and lunar eclipses would occur. And while stating the mathematical problem was pretty simple, solving it was something else entirely. For example, by 1860, a French mathematician had produced nearly 2,000 pages of calculations. We had this incredibly complicated algebraic computation, which in modern times, with technology that I spent my time building, uh, we could do fairly easily. But in his time, it took him 20 years to do all this algebra. Finally, a large effort was mounted, and Ernest Brown, with support coming from many sources, including the financial support of the United States government and the work of his sister Mildred, who otherwise kept her older brother's life free from cares and disturbances, Brown led a project to compute an approximation of the three-body problem, the problem of the moon, by, Wolfram says, solving an equation for the two-body motion with a periodic driving force of roughly the kind the sun exerts on the moon's orbit. Brown identified that the gravitational effects of Jupiter also were important to consider, and the gravitational effects of Venus. He even accounted for the fact that the Earth's rotation appeared to be slowing down which we now accommodate by adjusting our clocks by leap second from time to time. Brown worked on the problem for at least 12 years. In 1918, he finally produced a collection of tables that were accurate enough to predict and in some detail where eclipses would, would fall. And actually his tables were basically what was used for the Apollo mission to figure out where the moon would be for celestial navigation for the Apollo missions. In the end, if you look at what Brown has in his tables, it's a great big sum of hundreds of trigonometric functions, sines and cosines and so on. Each of the sines and cosines has a different frequency and a different amplitude and so on. You add all these things up and eventually you get an approximation to the position of the moon. And in 1925, when a total solar eclipse was predicted and seen over New York City, the New York Times proclaimed that the moon, quote, was about four seconds late in blotting out the sun, end quote. I'm not sure that that was actually what was happening. I'm not sure that Brown would have thought he could calculate it that accurately. I think that would have been difficult in those times. And there's really not much evidence for what the New York Times ended up claiming there. But but it's, it's kind of a nice story, at least. 
With the invention of the modern computer, the three-body problem can now be solved numerically quite accurately. And so the difficulty that remains in calculating the exact moment of a total solar eclipse is in measuring all the parameters, including which mountain on the moon may or may not be in the way in the very last moment before totality. To figure out how the rays of light can kind of make it in between mountains or hit a mountain and don't make it out and so on. So that's kind of the final effect. And I think if we could get that effect really nailed down, we'd probably to be accurate to 0.1 seconds. So even with all the technology, all the computers, all that we can measure, the closest Wolfram thinks he can get is to within one second. Oh yeah, it's a bit complicated mess. So how close was he and his team, which included people at other locations along the line of totality, in case there were clouds where he was? Wolfram himself was in Jackson, Wyoming, where it was clear, capturing it on video and using it to measure light intensity to find the moment of totality. Here's a bit of his analysis of that, using the number of frames in the video his team captured. As the moon kind of bites into the sun, there will be a linear decrease in light intensity. So right there, so that's the total eclipse. That's when the light went to its lowest value, and that's exactly what you would expect. Those were the frame numbers, which was 8025. So what we had predicted was frame 8065, which is a difference of 40 frames, which is a second, roughly a second. Which is pretty close, given that the moon's shadow was traveling at about 2,000 miles an hour in Wyoming, or around one kilometer a second. To me, it's remarkable that we can compute as accurately as we can to within perhaps a second when the moon is going to line up precisely with the sun and we're going to get our total eclipse. But I think the thing that's most interesting to me is looking at the history of how we got to the point of being able to do this. It's kind of an epic story of science. Wolfram wrote a version of that epic story on his blog. You'll find a link to it on our website, americanscientist.org. You've been listening to a podcast from American Scientist magazine, published by Sigma Psi, the Scientific Research Honor Society. I'm Robert Frederick. Thanks for joining us.